Welcome to the InnoStation podcast. We cover stories of entrepreneurship and innovation across the four Ds of the energy transition. Tune into the show and get inspired. Hi, my name is Jordi. I'm one of the founders at Optimal. We build tools for intelligent, cost, and CO2-conscious decision-making in the built environment. Behind our products are optimization, simulation, and prediction algorithms, which give owners and consultants the ability to make the smartest investment decisions from asset to portfolio. Our goal is net zero 2050, cost-effectively. Welcome back, you new know, listeners. I'm your host, Alessandra Armenia, and joining us today is Jordi Campos, co-founder of Optimal. Jordi, thank you for accepting our invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Ale. It's a, it's a pleasure being here and look forward to it. Thank you, Jordi. So Optimal is a software platform that harnesses the power of optimization for digitalized and sustainable real estate investment planning. Now, Jordi, I would like to begin with a striking fact. In a world shifting to urbanization, buildings have become the primary spaces where we spend most of our days. And consequently, it is inevitable to overlook the fact that these buildings are among the highest contributors to CO2 emissions. According to the UN Environmental Programme, the real estate sector produces around 30% of the world's annual greenhouse gas emissions. And on top of that, it consumes nearly 40% of the world's energy. So, Jordi, what are some of the biggest challenges that real estate companies face when it comes to sustainability? So, the general tendency or what we're observing is that Sustainability is something that owners know they're going to have to tackle as a, as a, as a challenge. They are often not very well informed. It's very difficult to change your processes to comply with sometimes regulation that's not existing, but they know that it's going to come. And so I think there is the relationship they have towards it is is mostly fear-driven, especially for the large owners. And then for smaller owners, we see owners that are very driven because they, they feel a sense of duty. And so it's a, diff, a bit of a different attitude. Yeah, and uh, I guess that here comes the solution that Optimal is trying to deliver to the market, correct? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more how is exactly your, your service and uh, what do you offer? Yeah, so I mean, so we're very early on in our journey. Optimizing buildings for sustainability could involve a lot of different steps and processes. We're really focused on existing buildings and we're tackling the renovation process. And so what we do for building owners and consultants is we aggregate publicly available data. We uh, combine it with client data and internal data that we have uh, curated over time. And we feel, feed all of that information in an optimization model that spits out different st strategies relative to the price point at which you want to be operating your building at and relative to the strategy in terms of emissions that you want to have. And we offer those to the customers and we try to create a insightful and interactive experience in the process. Interesting. Each time that a customer comes to you, for example, and has uh, a unique asset, how do you account for the uniqueness of each building in your software? That's a great question. So I think the first thing that you have to define when you tackle a problem like the one we're tackling is what kind of accuracy do you want to offer at what price point? 
you will rarely be better than a consultant that has gone on premise and has taken pictures of the building and taken notes and inspected. That's going to be very hard to beat, but that's also very costly. So our approach is we want to figure out how much information we can get and how much insight we can deliver without ever visiting the premise. And the way we do that is we try to uh, we leverage the 3D model of the building that's obtained via photogrammetry or other methods, and we combine it with images. We combine it with data that the customer has and some internal data uh, about other buildings. And we try to have previous buildings inform the next building in the analysis. And we try to see, given that, what are we able to have a good level of confidence on? And what kind of processes does that fit? It's very important for us to, to build a solution that can kind of that can scale across geographies. And this is the approach that we're taking. And so we're not replacing the people that are going on ground. There's going to be a need for those, especially at the feasibility level of a project. And later on, we're just trying to see how much can we do with the data that's already out there. Do you think it could also be useful to insurance companies to help determine the risk associated to these assets? Yeah, that's really uh, kind of the next pro uh, product line that we're thinking about, looking at transitional risk. So seeing how an asset fares against different strategies on the policy side, especially products like these are not available generally on the market. And that's really something that we're thinking about because our optimization models would really do well in that scenario. Yeah, I can see that, Jordi. And talking about insurance companies, you also mentioned consultants. What is the target market right now for you? As you know, or as you might know, if you're quite familiar with the real estate industry, it's quite a segmented and fragmented industry. There's a lot of players of different sizes and they have different interests, different processes. There's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of like different players we could go after. I think the bigger differentiation really is the owners. So you can try to appeal directly to the owners, or you can also build tools for consultants. They have uh, different implications, and you could potentially try to go after both at the same time. I think this is something that we're really still researching at the company. Jordi, it might seem a bit abstract sometimes to the listeners to understand software as a service companies. Let's play a game. Let's pretend that I am... Uh, I am a real estate company or I'm a consultant and I would like to use one of your products. First of all, would you like to present the two products that you have in Optimal? At Optimal, we're, we have, let's say, our standard product, which is the Optimal Asset. What that aims to do is provide strategies on the asset level in terms of investments into renovations and changes of the energy system. The main output there are discounted cash flows on the investment level that can be then passed on to the next person in the process. And then we have another product that sits atop Optimal Asset, which is the Optimal Portfolio. And here we're really venturing in new grounds and new territory. What we're trying to do is we're trying to also change the way assets are strategized at a portfolio level. We're trying to have not only a bottom-up approach where we look at the specificity of the asset, but also a top-down approach. So that means how do asset strategies change from 
larger, higher level targets that might be set by the head of an organization. So that's what Optimal Portfolio aims to do is defining strategies on the portfolio level that then inform changes on the asset level. There's lots of problems there, such as navigating budgetary requirements or wanting to decarbonize buildings that are easier to decarbonize than others. So we see a real need and potential in that space. I think the main limitation up until now is just not having the right technology to be able to tackle those problems. And we think that we, we have it. Coming back to the game, let's pretend, for example, that I am an investor and uh, I come to you and I have a building. So I would like to use optimal asset because I want to see future strategies for my building asset. What do I expect? What parameters will come out and how can optimal help me to build a long-term strategy? That's a great question. And if I'm completely honest, we're still in the process of figuring out what that experience might look like for an owner. I think we come from a very engineering approach and we really understand the need of creating a user-friendly product that really sits well with owners. And that's a whole journey that we're on. Another journey that we're on is we're taking this process, which is sporadic, that happens every couple of years and trying to change the mindset from this one-off thing that you do to like constant monitoring of your building. And so given those two things, we're really trying to shape the product to make to feel like we're empowering the customer and, and give them the impression that they now have a lot of agency in a territory that is plagued by a lot of complexity, right? You need to deal with the complexity of your building on the way it operates and also of policy, of costing and emissions data. So that's kind of what we're thinking is trying to supercharge the user and give them the impression that now they can take high level decisions that are going to translate into lower level decisions. That's a great answer, Jordi. It made me reflect on the user friendliness of such a platform. How much do you, do you rely on user friendliness? How much is important in your strategy? I think it's extremely central to the strategy and that term, that umbrella term, user friendliness, hides a lot of things that need to be unpacked. I think more than just having a nice UI, you really need to understand what is the decision that's being taken in the process. And you have to back propagate from that decision and build a journey towards it that is enjoyable for the user. You have to figure out how they think, what are the sources of uncertainty, Ultimately, what is the final decision they need to make and what kind of validation they need on it to follow through with it? So that's what we're trying to understand. We are building a team around that and coupling it with people that have a lot of domain knowledge. And yeah, ultimately, we hope that we can finish with a, a great product. Thank you, Jordi. I would like to touch two more aspects. The first one is policy. How does Optimal deal with policies when it has to integrate it in its software? Yeah, so now we have, uh, if I could put it in like representative terms, we have a bit of like a pull strategy. So that means that when we onboard a new customer, we go and have a look at what's the policy in place in a certain area, and then we build out the integrations to have that present in the optimization model. 
over time, we're really honing in on the right strategy. The problem with policy is that it's not extremely queryable at the moment. It's often stored in unstructured form. So that means PDF reports, websites. It's not recorded in like a harmonious way. So there's a lot of processing that needs to happen. A lot of it has to be inputted manually. And I think that's also one of the challenges. As a, as a company in this space, you need to be a curator of public information also. And uh, to respect to transparency and flexibility, since I can imagine that policy changes throughout the time and uh, maybe it can occur that a client suddenly ch- sees that its uh, strategy for his asset or for his portfolio has changed. How do you maintain uh, this transparency? Yeah, I mean, the, the way you present it seems like our strategies are final and, and the hope is that we move away from that perspective, right? We know that inf- there's a whole lot of information that might change your strategy from policy to other factors, like it could be a shortage in sales and heat pumps, and that might change your strategy. And we are very well aware of that. And that's why we want to go towards more of a continuous monitoring mindset where users can continuously consult our products and get updates and rerun strategies and be even alerted when we think that they should be rerunning their strategies and reconsidering them. So we see change as an enabler for us. It's really our strongest selling point. We want to be able to sit on top of the changing world with lots of parameters. That's what we do best, we believe. And we want to be able to deliver value to our customer on an ongoing basis. Talking more about your experience as an early stage software based startup, it is known that it has become more accessible to develop software with modern tools like no code or AI. And an example is ChatGPT. Have you seen this affect the requirements from investors for software based startups? Yeah, yeah completely, 100%. I mean, I'm a big user of those type of tools, maybe not so much the no code, but uh, definitely large language models, ChatGPT. I think that you can do so much as a couple founders. What's going to happen there is that I think VCs are going to be asking for a lot more validation earlier on in the process. They're going to be probably delivering or giving out smaller tickets to companies and asking them to display some more like greater signs of product market fit earlier on because you really have the tools to do it. It's uh, it's quite impressive what you can do with a lot of technologies that are widely available. And I think that's just going to change a lot of that funding process where you won't have to build out a team of five or 10 to even get the type of validation that you need early on in the journey of a company. And about your funding, you have just done your pre-seed funding round, 1.6 million. Congratulations. What can you share about this funding round? So for maybe the founders out there that haven't gone through the process of raising uh, money, it takes longer than you expect. It takes a bit of time just even tailoring your pitch. It's a skill that you develop. So I was lucky enough that my co-founder took on that responsibility and did great. I think ultimately you might be pressured at some point when you get an offer to make a decision quickly you should push back on it and you should take the time to decide with whom you go. We're really happy with the investors we had. 
but we all, we're also a bit under pressure at some point. And the reason why I'm saying that you should take your time is in the end, a startup is a, is a human endeavor. It's a human journey, adventure. And any person that you're working with is going to matter at the end of the day. So you hire investors, not just for the capital that they inject in your company early on, but also for the insight, for their network and for their support when times get a bit rocky. And so I would take my time with that. How did you handle not getting diluted in such early stage? We had to reorganize our cap table so that we were better suited for investment over time. Uh, so there were some adjustments to be made there. But ultimately, investors are aligned with you as they will be careful about that. They won't want to take on too much equity too early on because they know that that might not make you worthy of investment down the road. So I wouldn't have like an adversarial approach to your investors per se. Like they they have the same interest that you have to succeed and uh, they'll want to set you up in the best way possible for that to happen. Yeah, excellent, excellent uh, observations. Hey, and, and now that you got this funding, what are you looking forward to do with the money that you received? The true fun begins where we actually get to build out our product and kind of like start living out the vision and the dream we've had for a long time now. We're putting a great team together. We're spending a lot of time doing it, talking to a lot of people and going. It's quite a long hiring process. We're super excited about it. We're super excited to bring other people on board and empower them. We're hiring for five to six positions. We've secured some positions already, but we're always open to really talented uh, applicants or people that are extremely motivated to join the team. It's a very enriching moment for our company. And for Optimal, what is your roadmap for scaling your product? Our first goal is to try to operationalize the work that we've done up to now. So we've done like, let's say more consultancy based pilots, and we're really trying to build a SaaS platform out of it that would fulfill the needs of our customers, like try to close some recurring revenue. So that's the journey that we're on. But maybe on a higher level, we're really trying to change also a bit the process that's in place. Like I mentioned before, this idea of like this one-off analysis to ongoing monitoring. We're really trying to pioneer a lot of things and also this top-down approach uh, combined with like really asset level detail. So those are really interesting challenges and we're trying to see if we can make a dent and change the way people think about their portfolio and asset strategies. From your top-down approach, can you also target cities, countries, and offer them and deliver them strategies? Yes. I mean, so this is kind of like my long-term goal is I would like us to be so good and so capable that we can ingest the information necessary to process a city and then be able to deliver insight on a city level. So that means like what kind of incentives to put in place to actually make a change on uh, the emissions and the livability of a city. I think that would really be, that's kind of like our North Star, or at least it's mine. And that's the direction we're trying to go in. 
That is awesome. I really wish you the best of luck for that and looking forward to, to that moment. And uh, I would uh, I would like to finish with some questions regarding entrepreneurship and your experience as an entrepreneur. How has it been the transition from academics, from academia to to being an entrepreneur? I think that's a really important question because I think there's a lot of opportunity for people that are currently in academia that finish maybe their bachelor, master or PhD to get started on that entrepreneurial journey. I think you start reflecting about problems in a slightly different manner. In academia, you're often caught up in the details. And what's really important to keep in mind when you're trying to deliver a product for the real world is to figure out in in what process you're fitting in. And you really need to be cognizant of the people that are involved and spend a whole lot more time talking to them than than you might have imagined initially. I think that's also... One of the things that doesn't that don't come naturally to uh, people that are in academia, we often want to just get started on a problem. I think talking to people is a huge help and it's a requirement. So I think that journey is to be encouraged and supported, but also you will need to learn things along the way. And that's also part of the excitement is that you now enter a moment in your life where you unlock a lot of learning. You're learning at a rate that you might not have been learning at before. And that what that's what ultimately pushes a lot of people that are very curious, more than just seeking financial return. What is a common myth about entrepreneurship? I think a lot of the things that are portrayed are sometimes misleading. There's a lot of illusion. There's a lot of uh, hyping up. In the end, you've only succeeded if you've delivered something that has fared well in the world and you've delivered some value to people. Until then, you're still just on your journey of trying to get there. There's a lot of information out there that's misleading on the level of seeing investments as a success. Um, Like I mentioned before, your goal is really to deliver something valuable to the end user You can spend a whole lot of time building things that are great technically, but don't deliver a lot of value. And so I think that that should be really the focus. It's customer first, and you're going to have to catch yourself a lot of times. There's going to be a lot of times where you would want to explore something, and you need to have the discipline to think about the value that you create for your end users. Great answer, Jordi. To end up, can you describe your everyday life since you started working for Optimal? Yeah, so what's a day in the life of Jordi at the moment is I wake up quite early because my girlfriend is an eye doctor and she works in a different city, one hour away commute, and I love it. So she sets my, my pace and I wake up, I make a tea and a coffee for her, and then eventually I make my way to work. And I'll work there for the most part of my day. I'll have lunch uh, with my co-founder or my uh, the intern that we have at the moment or with uh, prospective business partners. And I'll eventually come home when my girlfriend is home from work. And uh, then I'll do some exercise with her in summer, swim in the river after a workout and read or watch a quick movie with her, go to bed and rinse and repeat. Thank you, Jordi. So in this interview, we've covered a lot of ground. 
But before we finish, I have with me three illustration questions that we traditionally ask to everyone. So the first one would be, Jordi, if you could have a coffee with an innovator or a person you admire, who would you choose and why? I guess given that we're in Switzerland, I would probably go, and I'm a big tennis fan, I'd probably go for Roger Federer. He has also been involved in a couple entrepreneurial uh, ventures, and it's kind of, it's great to see how athletes and high performers think about uh, their their lives and the world they live in. As a second question, if you were to write the best entrepreneurial advice that you have ever received on your doormat, what would it be? I think one that I don't receive enough, if I could reframe the question, is kind of be a historian of your domain and try to be as well-versed as possible in your domain. It's super important to keep tabs on what has happened, what was tested, what failed, why did it fail? And especially in industries that don't change at the pace you would expect, this is not because technology has never been at the front door, but it's because there's always been some resistance to technology adoption, for example. And getting familiar with those things is quite important if you want to have the impact that you seek. As a third question, What's your favorite book or the most recent one that you've read? Actually, the first book that I ever read on entrepreneurship truly was probably Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And I'm going to give out uh, the name of a book that uh, I've read recently that has also quite impacted me. It turns out to be a free book, so I would recommend a lot of people to go read it. It's also more applicative to, let's say, software development. But I love the work that the guys at Basecamp and 37 Signals are doing. And so the book is Getting Real. And I think it's a great book to kind of like anchor your thinking about how to deliver value at a team level. Awesome. Getting Real from Basecamp, you said. Yeah. Nice, nice. And The Shoe Dog is a must read for, for entrepreneurs. I really agree with you. I, I read it and I loved it. Hello listeners, in this episode, we listen to Jordi Campos, co-founder of Optimal. Thank you, Jordi, and good luck in your next chapter. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ale. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you, Jordi. And now, if you're interested to learn more about Optimal, check out their website at optimal.com and follow them on LinkedIn. Also, drop us a line on podcast at co.innoenergy.com with a startup you'd like us to feature. Don't forget to follow this podcast, share this episode with a friend, and remember to get inspired by InnoStation. Today we had Jordi Campos, tomorrow it can be you. InnoStation is a podcast of EIT InnoEnergy community hosted by Alessandra Armenia, content edition by Estefania Revalo and Ahmad Bassam, outreach and communications by Prakar Sharma, Volcanic Seek is our advisor, and Wadarafi, our producer. 